0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. We're going through this book. The book of Acts has 28 chapters. It was written by Luke. He was an associate of Paul. It's a wonderful, fantastic book. It's historical. It is beneficial and fruitful for us to study this as Christians and the church because it's it's our history. This is where we came from. This is our roots, our legacy, the foundation, and we just had a. A delightful time, I trust, and an edifying time at this point, seeing how the church started. Now it's growing, God is moving, and we are now in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 1 was Jesus' ascension, the ascension of the Son. Acts chapter 2, Holy Spirit comes to you on Pentecost. Acts chapter 3, crippled beggar set free. John and Paul in Acts chapter 4, John and Peter preach some more. They will not be silenced. Acts chapter 5 is where we are today, so let's go ahead and look at it. I want to read for our passage today, we're going to emphasize verses 1 through 11 in chapter 5, but we need to start at verse 32 of chapter 4. The division break in your English Bible is an artificial one. It wasn't in Luke's account when he wrote it. There were no chapter breaks. And so chapter 5 is actually a part of chapter 4. They go together. And we preached on that last week. But to give us context, I want to read that. So follow along as I read. Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 32 all the way to Acts 5, verse 11, keeping in mind the last thing that happened was Peter and John were arrested for preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. They went to jail and then trial and were reprimanded and then threatened and censured, sent on their way. Peter and John reported to the many new believers, the church, what happened And with one voice, they raised their requests and praises to God. God answered prayer, and the church continued to preach the word of God in the name of Jesus. They would not be silent. They would be obedient to God and not to man. And all the while, God has preserved their unity. This is a massive megachurch. At this point, 3,000 plus 10,000, close to fifteen to 20,000 believers in Jerusalem now. That's how huge this brand new church is. Megachurch, and amazingly, God is preserving their unity. But they are a new church. They're only weeks, if not months old. And so we pick up verse 32, and the congregation are the multitude of Christians, of those who believed, who professed the name of Christ. They were baptized, made public professions. They were of one heart and one soul. That phrase is key. You might want to take note of that. They were of one heart. And one soul, that was the key to unity in the church. It all—it was an inner attitude and the work of the Holy Spirit that preserves Christians and allows them to get along. Left to ourselves, we don't get along. We are selfish and self-centered to the core. They were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. So they were willing to share on behalf of other Christians who were in need. Verse 33, with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Abundant grace was upon them all. God was blessing the entire church. Satan tried to attack the church from the get-go, the very beginning, from the outside, outside attacks. Through the persecution of the Sanhedrin, shut it down. That wasn't successful. God continued to bless, continued to protect. Abundant grace was upon all. That means the entire church in Jerusalem. For there was not a needy person among the congregation. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales. And they would lay the money. This is incredible sacrificial giving. They'd see the need of fellow Christians. Wow, they don't have any money. How can I give? And they would sell land that they owned, take the money, lay it at the apostles' feet. Verse 35, That's a giving, they were giving it to the leadership of the church, trusting the leadership of the church that they would be good stewards of that money. That takes faith. But that's what they did, laid it at the apostles' feet, and the apostles would distribute the money as they saw the needs. A specific example of someone who did this in an exemplary manner was a man named Joseph who was also called Barnabas, son of encouragement, who will become a main character through the rest of the book of Acts up till about Acts chapter 13, becomes a mentor of the Apostle Paul, goes on the first missionary journey with the Apostle Paul, a very wise, mature, godly man. That's Barnabas. Barnabas owned land. He sold the land. He took the prophet. He gave it to the apostles, laid it at their feet. Here, Peter. James, John, I, I trust that you will do God's will with this. It's my joy to give to the needs of the saints. That's what they did. Verse 37, and all... Oh, and uh, this is uh, Barnabas by the apostles, and who owned a tract of land, he sold it, and he brought the money, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. So just incredible, tremendous unity. God was blessing. Now we make a severe transition In light of this fact that there was unity, people were of one heart and one mind. People were giving sacrificially. It said all who had land were selling it and bringing the proceeds, giving it to the apostles. And in contrast to Barnabas, this man of integrity and generosity and sacrificial giving, in contrast to that is a new man who's introduced in chapter 5, verse 1, who's the topic of this story, this real story, verses 1 through 11. his name was Ananias. So let's read about Ananias now and his wife. Sapphira, but, but, contrast, but in contrast to Barnabas, the godly man who gave with impeccable integrity, in contrast to Barnabas, a man named Ananias, a a Christian, or at least a professing Christian, he's in the assembly of all these who professed to believe, who were baptized, Ananias, he's in the church of Jerusalem, but a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira, Their original names coming from the Hebrew, it's ironic, they're, they're good names, they're blessed names. From God's point of view, at least the meaning of their names. So Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. So Ananias and Sapphira, they owned some land. They're a married couple. They sold the property. Verse 2, and they kept back some of the price for himself, Ananias did, with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it Ananias laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? To lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. He died. And great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him up. And after carrying him out, they buried him. Now, there elapsed an interval of about three hours. And his wife came in, Sapphira, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. She died. And the young men came in and they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Verse 11, And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. Wow. The church is maybe a couple months old right now. The church is growing with explosive growth. And there's been these phrases that Luke has been peppering in through the text of God was blessing. They, had, they were unified. They were one. They had one heart, mind, and soul. They were characterized by unity and love for one another. And Satan goes on the assault as the roaring lion seeking to destroy. And he attacks the church from without through persecution, through the leadership in Jerusalem, trying to shut the church down. That didn't work. So... Satan never relents. If I can't attack and make a mark from the outside, I will attack from the inside. And inevitably, that is what Satan always does with every church. He's done it for 2,000 years throughout history. Attacking from the outside and then attacking from the inside, from within. And there's many tactics he uses to do that, and that's what he's doing here. So for the first time in the book of Acts with the early church, we are seeing for the first time, I think, yes, a satanic-inspired, Vicious assault on the church, and it is from within, and is through the mouths of professing Christians. That's how Satan works, to create division, to recreate compromise. If he can get some believers in this church to compromise, to sin, to be immoral, to make a public spectacle, then he can undermine the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ to the world and pit Christians against one another. So the integrity of the church is at stake here with this gross sin that we're seeing for the first time, the sin within. That's how Satan always operates. Boy, we read this story, I don't know, some of you maybe are reading this story for the first time. Maybe you didn't know this story was in the Bible. It might be shocking to you or alarming or just our nature, human sensibilities find this kind of thing an affront and almost can't, what in the world, I thought God was love. This is not loving. Peter watches there in church as two Christians die on the spot. For what? That's not fair. That's not a loving God. This is Christianity. And so that's a common question or reaction and response. Not just by unbelievers. As a matter of fact, unbelievers will attack Christianity. And many times they'll go to passages like this and read Acts chapter 5 because many Christians are embarrassed by that story. And as they read it, the unbelieving world, they can't, ha- they don't have the capacity by which to understand and interpret that story. Wow, this is the religion that you believe in? Well, just by way of reminder, before we get to the details and the three main points I want to make in Acts chapter 5 on this true story, is this is not an exception of how God operates. This is not Uh, An anomaly to what God thinks about sin. This is consistent with the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. So just a few things to remind us, especially as Christians. Maybe we're not familiar with some of these things. But in Genesis chapter 2, when God created Adam and Eve, the first two people, he created the world without sin. Adam and Eve were real people. God made them. He gave them a mandate. There was no sin yet. And he gave Adam a commission in Genesis chapter 2. And he said, here's all your freedoms. Here Here are the things you can eat. Here's one area you need to refrain from. Don't eat this tree. Genesis 2.16, So the Lord God, the creator of the universe, commanded Adam, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. That's a command by God. It was clear. Don't do that. When you do something God says don't do, that is called sin. So don't eat from this tree. For in the day that you eat from that tree, you shall surely die. That's what God said to Adam. Well, Adam and Eve ate from that tree. They disobeyed. They sinned for the first time. God hates sin. God must punish sin. God was true to his word. He said, you will die if you disobey. In Genesis 5, 5, it said, Adam died. And that's a principle all throughout Scripture from the very beginning In the New Testament, the book of Romans, the wages of sin is death. Any sin, every sin. Sin is separation from God. So it can be manifest through physical death or the spirit leaves the body. It can be spiritual death, which is separation from God being when you don't know him or it can be eternal death. Where an unbeliever is consigned to eternal hell Upon their last breath in this life if they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. So that is the meaning of death from a biblical point of view. So God made it clear in the beginning. So if you're familiar with the Bible and the nature of God, God is not just love. Is God love? Absolutely. Is God only love? No. That is a defective view of God. That's a warped definition of God. If that's all you think about God, is this God is love? No, God is love. That's one of his attributes. God is Holy. Holy, holy. I am a jealous God, he said in the book of Obadiah. God is a God of wrath. God is a God of justice. God is a God of grace, mercy, patience. God has manifold attributes. And all of them are perfect. All of them are infinite. All of them are without flaw. They are Perfect. So when he has, when the Bible says that God, one of God's attributes is wrath, it is a holy wrath. That is a perfect wrath. He gets angry without sin, unlike us. We usually have sin mixed up somewhere in our anger. Typically, it's called the anger of man, unlike righteous indignation, which belongs to God. It is a holy and perfect and deserved anger. So, uh, there it is. God laid out the law, His requirement of humanity. So just, and then just a couple of maybe familiar stories. I won't go there. I don't know if you remember these. In Leviticus chapter 10, under Moses' leadership, he's taken 2 million Israelite Jews through the desert for 40 years. God gives them the Ten Commandments plus the law, delineating how they should do their worship, how they should be marked out as a holy people, how they should do things distinctly from the rest of the world and the Gentiles around them, down to the last detail. They need to be different. And God gave them his very presence in the Ark of the Covenant. And they built a tabernacle, which was kind of like a temporary temple. And God said, when you worship me through your sacrifices, you need to do it a certain way, and only the priests can do it. And certain priests, they got to do it the right way, according to what my word says. And you couldn't violate that, because I am holy, I am sacred. So follow the prescribed pattern of worship and Moses said yes, and he told the priesthood, and sent Aaron, Moses' brother, was the priestly line, and he had some sons, and there was Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, and they were in charge of the priestly services and duties, and they offered the sacrifices and the fire and the smoke up to God, and they were supposed to do it a right way, and they knew. It was written down for them. Yet they took it upon themselves from an evil heart to do it their own way in Leviticus chapter 10. When they did that, they offered strange fire to Almighty God, doing it the wrong way, abusing God's word in their worship as priests, It says that the fire came down from heaven and consumed them. God killed them instantly from heaven. And the congregation of Israel who saw this, as you can imagine, was overcome with fear. Wow. That is the holy wrath of God. Aaron knew it was sinful and he remained silent. He couldn't mourn for his sons. Because he was supposed to esteem the holiness of God above his love for his children. Uh, Another incident, just a few years later, in about 1400 B.C., Moses finally gets them through the wilderness, and then they enter the promised land. Moses doesn't get to go. There's two million Israelites. Moses hands the baton to Joshua. Joshua leads them across the Jordan River. They get into the promised land. They're on the brink, and now they have to take over the entire promised land incrementally over the course of 13-plus years, city by city, town by town. And God's given them direction every step of the way. And one of the first towns you gotta take over is Jericho. It's got walls. Here's how you do it. You'll do it by the mighty hand of the power of God through miracles and obedience to me, Joshua. And Joshua said, okay, the people obeyed, and God gave them Jericho. And he said, but when you go into Jericho, there is a ban. There are things in there, I don't want you to touch, don't touch the silver, the gold, the booty, all that stuff. That belongs to the Lord. It is sacred to the Lord. The people aren't allowed to have that and take it unto themselves. That goes into the treasury of the Lord. There's a ban. Don't take it. So they go into Jericho, take over the town. And then there's an Israelite there, a follower of Yahweh, who's in the congregation. His name is Achan. He is a father. He is a husband. He has a large family. He has a tent. They go into Jerusalem. Jerusalem. When nobody's looking because of all the commotion and the city's being overtaken by the people of God, he sees some gold, he sees some silver, he sees some expensive stuff, he grabs it, he takes it, he looks around, nobody's looking, takes it into his tent, buries it in the tent, thinking nobody saw him and nobody did see him. Uh, What's a little silver and gold? Well, God saw it and God communicated that to Joshua. And God punished Israel for that compromise. And Joshua was overwhelmed and weeping. God, why are you not blessing us anymore? Why did we lose? Why are we being overcome by the pagans? What is going on? And God said, because you've got a compromiser in your midst. And bring the whole congregation out, and I will expose him. And Joshua did before Almighty God and the whole congregation of Israel. And the man that was pointed out that God identified and revealed was a man named Achan. And then finally, Joshua, with his finger at his face, said, Achan, give glory to God and repent of your sin. And he admitted it in front of the whole congregation. And the consequence was God required that they take him out of the city because under God's judgment, he was unclean. And they took him out in the congregation of Israel. They stoned him and his entire family to death, fulfilling the righteous requirement of Almighty God. That is a shocking story. That was God's will. That was Achan. And then one more in the day of, so you fast forward 400 years, 1000 BC, King David, the second king of Israel. The ark of God, the ark of covenant, that the presence of God in that ark where the ten commandments were put, where Aaron's rod was put, where a cup of manna was put, where at times the, the very presence of Almighty God and the Shekinah would reside on top of that ark, that box carried on two special poles with rings only by certain priests who were allowed to carry it in a certain manner weren't allowed to touch the boxes. They carried it. Well, it got stolen by the Philistines. Well, God allowed the Israelites to recoup it. This is 1000 BC under David's reign, and they're about to celebrate and have a party because they have regained the sacred Ark of the Covenant. And it says in Second Samuel chapter six, David's about to lead an entire party uh, among the Israelites to celebrate that the covenant of God is coming back home. And so David assigned some men to carry the Ark, and they made a mistake. They're supposed to carry it on poles in a specific way with certain priests, and it says three times, I think, that they put it on a new cart, a new cart, a new cart. You don't carry the Ark of the Covenant on a cart. 400 years before, God told Moses how you carry the, the Ark of the Covenant. It's not to be put on a cart. So they're being disobedient. And there were priests who were managing this as it's going down the cart, and it's going on a bumpy road, and the priests are going out in front of it. One of them was named Uzzah. He was a priest of God. He was an Israelite. He turns around. He sees that the cart got bumped. And the Ark of the Covenant was about to fall off. And Uzzah, the priest, not wanting the Ark of God to fall on the ground, goes over and he touches it to balance it. And it says, the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah for profaning that which was sacred. And God killed Uzzah on the spot. That is shocking. That is... David got angry uh, at God temporarily but that was the holiness of God. And so this is a theme that can be traced all throughout Scripture. And so you've got, let's go to Acts chapter 5 now, because you have a similar story. It's the same God. And these incidents that happen here and there, they happen at the prerogative of God. God doesn't just kill people all the time like these incidents. These were somewhat special, rare occasions happened intermittently, but one thing that didn't change was the nature of God and what he thinks of sin. So let's go ahead and look at it. Let's look at the story of Ananias and Sapphira and how Satan tries to get sin within to undermine and destroy the church and the reputation of the church through Christian compromise. If you look at your, at your handout there, I want to cover the first four verses, one through four, and this is the first point, the event, the event that was prompting God's discipline. The title of the sermon I put, God Purifies His Church. When sin creeps in, God needs to purify his church. God is committed to that. The church is the body of Christ. It is the precious bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 says that God is preparing his bride. And actually, Ephesians 4 as well. God is preparing his bride, adorning his bride, growing his bride, maturing his bride, preparing the bride, the church of Christ throughout history for the wedding day, his wedding day, the wedding when Jesus marries the church. So he must Purify the church and keep her pure and keep her holy and allow her to grow and church discipline is a part of that process and so it is God who's actually going to implement church discipline in this process to deal with sin to help keep the church pure. Hence God purifies His church. Jesus said only two times in the gospel where even Jesus, where Jesus even mentioned the word church. The first one was in Matthew 16 when He said, I'm going to build my church. This is the end of His ministry just before His death. I am going to build the church. And then the second time he mentions it, Matthew 18, I am going to purify my church is what he meant in the the discipline process of purity. I'm going to build my church and I am going to keep it pure. And I'm going to keep it pure by using believers to help keep it pure. I'm going to deal with sin. And here's an example of that as the church of Jesus Christ. By the way, if you look at Acts chapter 5 before we read, the Look at verse 11. And great fear came up over the whole church. This is the first time the word church is used in the book of Acts. That's significant. This is the first time the word church is used. It is now a new entity. It's not the covenant of Israel, the nation of Israel anymore. God is working through the church. Fear came upon the whole church. This should take us back immediately to the words of Jesus. I'm going to build my church. Wow, here it is. And then Matthew 18. I am going to purify my church. Wow, here it is. That's a means of growing the church is discipline. It's like pruning. Pruning plants help it grow. So let's look at the event that prompted God's discipline. What was it? Well, in summary, it was greed and lying, verses 1 through 4. Greed and lying from a professing believer prompted discipline from Almighty God. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira, they are professing Christians according to chapter 4, verse 32. They professed to believe. They're one of the ones, or a couple that got baptized publicly. They're doing what everybody else is doing. Barnabas has obviously got a great reputation. He is recognized for being a man of integrity and recognized for being a man of encouragement because it says in chapter 4, verse 36, that the apostles gave him a name appropriate for his godly behavior. So he had a reputation that was public. It could very well be that Ananias and Sapphira wanted that reputation for themselves. Hey, Barnabas got recognized Christian of the year or whatever. I'd like that honor. I'd like that title. How can we do that? Wow, giving money to the church, selling the property. Boy, that's that's impressive. Maybe the apostles will recognize us. Who knows what they were thinking? But we do know from the text, we're going to see that Ananias and Sapphira, they were conspiring in their hearts together behind the scenes about their plan. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. They had property. They owned it. They were private owners it was theirs they got money for it verse 2 says they kept and they kept back some of the price for himself ananias did so he sells the property who knows how much money he made but maybe it was good money and then he pockets some of the profit which there's nothing wrong with that by the way he was not obligated to sell his property and give money to the church we talked about that last week this was a free will offering uh Ananias would have been just fine had he never sold his property and didn't give that money to the church. This was free will offering from his own heart to sell the property and give some of the money. But apparently, we're going to see in the story, Ananias and Sapphira actually planned or said they were going to give the 100% of the profit or just all the money they made from the land, they were going to give it to the church. They communicated that clearly to the church. We know that from the text. And they probably communicated it very clearly to Peter in the leadership because people at this point, the pattern was lay your money and offerings at the apostles' feet. By the way, we don't know where this happened, the setting of this. This is probably not in Solomon's portico out in public in the temple because that refrain, they laid it at the apostles' feet. They laid it at the apostles' feet. Think about all that money that was given to the apostles. They had to collect it. They had to catalog it and count it and distribute it. This probably was in a private setting. This doesn't say this was at church. This very well could have been maybe in the upper room where the, the apostles were meeting, they were congregating. That was headquarters. Maybe that's where they did business. That's why two times it says young men came in and came out, came in and came out. Young men who were not present there when these two folks died. So it could very well be in some kind of setting like that, a private setting. So a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira, they sold their property. They kept back some of the price for themselves. By the way, in verse 2, New American Standard says kept back some of, kept back some of four words to translate one Greek word. One Greek word that just means appropriate or literally steal is a good translation. It is the exact same word used in Joshua chapter 7 with Achan when it says he appropriated that which was sacred to the Lord. The exact same verb. So if you're a Jew and you know your Bible well and you know history, man, you're thinking back to Joshua. And Ananias appropriated, illegitimately stole some of the money that he said was committed and he kept it for himself with his wife's full knowledge. She was not ignorant. She was in on it. Co-conspirator. And so bringing a portion of it, Ananias brings the money. He's all proud of himself. He goes to the apostles, he lays it at the apostles feet. Just like Barnabas did. Thinking, no doubt, that he would be commended for doing that. Verse 3, but Peter said, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? Filled. Filled. That same verb filled is used in chapter 4, when Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Also in verse 31, when it says the believers were filled, but the Holy Spirit, they spoke boldly, filled. It's used in the Gospels, filled. It means controlled. The Pharisees were filled with anger. What does that mean? They were controlled by anger. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was controlled by the Holy Spirit as he preached. Ananias here, filled with Satan. He is controlled by Satan. He is a tool of the devil. That's what that means. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? Light to who? To light of the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land. Here is his sin. His sin wasn't that he get, did not give the whole thing. His sin was that apparently he promised to give all of it and he didn't. And he was conniving, deceptive, and he lied. And he pocketed some of the money and he went and said, oh, here's everything that I made. That is a lie. And he obviously communicated to Peter. Peter was the leader and an elder of the church. He obviously made it public because he communicated it to the church body or at least the leadership of the church. That was the expectation. And that's why Peter says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. You haven't just lied to me, Peter. You haven't just lied to the leadership. You have lied to whoever, whatever believers you promised it to. And every believer has the Spirit of God living in them. And corporately, you have lied to the Holy Spirit of God who resides in his church individually and corporately. That same Holy Spirit who has preserved our unity up to this point. And this is a work of Satan. Peter is not blaming this on the devil. The devil made me do it. That's not what he was saying. But Satan truly was literally involved. Satan literally does tempt. He is evil. He's a vicious, wicked, deceiving lion. He doesn't just deceive unbelievers. He can deceive and does deceive Christians as well. If you don't think that you are vulnerable to the devil, you're already deceived and misled and vulnerable. Because every single one of us is. He is invisible. He is powerful. He is supernatural. He never slumbers. He never sleeps. He is constant, and he is always going after Christians in the church. And that's what he did with Ananias and Sapphira. Peter said, why has Ananias filled your heart? How in the world does Peter know this? How does Peter know that Ananias kept back some of the money? How does Peter know that it was Satan who prompted this lie? Because he's an apostle, and the refrain that's also occurring from Acts 1 to Acts 5 and through the rest of the book of Acts is that the apostles had a special ministry. Uh, God gave them direct revelation. God gave them immediate divine revelation. God gave them miracle gifts like word of knowledge and uh, discerning of spirits and those kind of things where apostles could do things that we cannot do. And there are things that are happening in here. Peter knows things that we don't know and it was a gift it was the mere, it was almighty god working through peter verse 12 says at the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were taking place this is an amazing sign or wonder god is using peter as a conduit to do this very thing to know what happened behind the scenes to expose ananias accordingly to render this judgment to bring about the shocking spontaneous judgment of death god is working through his leadership The apostles who laid the foundation of the church. This is miraculous. We cannot replicate this. I do not have this power as a pastor. And the people are thankful. I didn't get an amen. Can you imagine? I'm just, I don't like you. (laughs) So God is working through Peter as an apostle, exposing what happened. You're lying. Not only is the sin lying, who did he lie to? Lied to the Holy Spirit, verse 3. That is absolutely key. You lied to the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 4 he says, you did not lie to men, but to God. You lied to the Holy Spirit, you lied to God. The Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is God. That is a fundamental mark of exposing a false religion. Because they continually undermine the personality of the Holy Spirit and also the deity of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God to keep back some of the price of the land, verse 4, and while, and, and then he says in verse 4, so he's having a conversation with them. Now, Ananias, while the, while the property remained yours before you sold it, did it not remain your own? It was yours. You didn't have to give that. You were not obligated to. Private property. God respects that. It wasn't compulsory for you to sell your property. It was yours. But you did. And you said you were going to give us all the money. And you said that to God. You made a vow to God. And after it was sold, the land, was it not under your control? So even if you sold your land and you made all the money, even then you didn't have to give the money to us, all the money, or even part of the money. You made a profit. It was yours. Enjoy the fruits of your labor, as the book of Ecclesiastes would say. You didn't have to obligate or promise or say that you're going to give that to the church. So then, Ananias, why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? See, it started in the heart. It started with a thought. It started with a temptation. Uh, that's why Paul gives that warning in First Timothy 6 to rich people. And then he also gives warnings to James to all Christians about money, the love of money. You don't have to be rich to ha- be guilty or vulnerable to the sin of the love of money, right? coveting and material possessions, and many have fallen throughout history who loved God or professed to be lovers of God who compromised in the area of money, greed, filthy lucre. That's what Judas's sin was. Thirty pieces of silver for the life of the Son of God, Achan. And that's what happened to Ananias. Fell will pray to this sin, and it started in your heart. That's where sin started. That's what James says. Be careful. If you start thinking about it when you're about to do the sin or in the act of sin, it's too late. It has been brewing in your heart a long time. That's why we've got to examine our consciences regularly and routinely. Guarding our heart. Protecting our heart. Guarding our thoughts. Watching out for the seeds of temptation so that they might not be watered and nurtured and protected and grow in our hearts and to get root and to the point of fruition where it is too late and it gives birth to sin, which leads to death, says James. So he, he attacks and exposes the origin of it. Ananias, was about your heart. At some point, you let Satan influence you at the heart level. This is not just external behavior. You've not lied to men but to God. So that was the event Leading to God's discipline, it was greed, it was lying, it was a lack of integrity, it was a love of money, seeking his reputation, being a lousy husband, misleading his wife or being in cahoots with her. Let's go to number two. After the event prompting God's discipline, the extent of God's discipline. The extent was that both of them suffered the penalty The extent was they both suffered the ultimate penalty of sin and the consequences, which was death. That is God's ultimate penalty for sin. All throughout the book of the law or the book of Moses, there's, what, 633 laws or something like that, and if you violate any one of those laws, there was a corresponding consequence, and they weren't all death. The consequence was to be fitting of the crime. If you stole something from your neighbor, you took his axe, You were convicted, you got exposed. You were supposed to give the acts back and then pay some restitution fourfold. So not everything required the death penalty. Some things did require the death penalty. So the extent of God's discipline, instant death. So let's look at verses 5 to 10. And as, as Ananias heard these words from Peter, Ananias fell down and breathed. He just fell over dead on the spot. Maybe it was in the upper room and just boom, collapsed. Probably the apostles were there. Shocking. Maybe some of the church was there. Heard these words, fell over dead. Immediate response, verse 5, great fear came over all who heard of it. See, heard of it. They weren't necessarily there, they heard of it. Maybe Ananias had a reputation in the early church. He was local. He probably was from that area or at least owned land in that area. Early Christian, they probably knew each other. And quickly the word got out about this incident. Great fear came upon the believing community. Great fear. Fear of what? Fear of God. Fear of sin. Fear of the consequence of sin. You know why people were fearing and why we would fear? Because we are just as guilty and we know it. It's like, uh uh-oh, what if God finds out what I just did last week? What if God finds out what I did yesterday? What if God finds out what I am thinking? That's one of the main reasons that everybody was in fear. We know. Through guilt, the Holy Spirit, our conscience... That was the response. That's an appropriate response. That refrain is repeated two times in this passage. Verse 11, great fear came over the whole church after Sapphira died. Great fear. Appropriately so, this is Almighty God doing a supernatural miracle of death on the spot. Great fear came over all who heard of this incident. Verse 6, the young men got up and covered him up. After carrying him out, they buried him. So there were young men there in the presence of the death of Ananias, wherever this happened. Says they basically they got up immediately they covered him up, the dead body, and after carrying him out they buried him. So it was instantaneous. They didn't have they didn't announce this and say we're going to have a, a memorial service next Friday. This was they buried him on the spot. Why did they do that? Well, one of the reasons is Deuteronomy chapter twenty one verses twenty two and twenty three, where God says if there is a sin that that uh, happens in your midst in the community of God's people. That is under the wrath and the judgment of God. Where it becomes a curse of God, and someone is put to death, then they are to be buried. They are to be covered, wrapped, and buried immediately outside. Get that poison out of the presence of God. And these Jews—they're just obeying Scripture. They're—they're taking his body out, burying it before they even tell his wife. Why? Because they're—they're fulfilling the law of Moses. They are believing Jews. They haven't jettisoned the whole Old Testament. Oh, we don't pay attention to the Old Testament anymore. They're not far in the, enough in the transition yet. They understand the law of Moses in a new way, fulfilled with the person of Christ, and they are still obedient to much of what Scripture has to say. And so when it came to this, I think that's why it happened so quickly. That, bo- that man is unclean. His dead body is unclean. Get it out of here. And the young men got up. They covered it. After carrying him out, they buried him Immediately. Maybe that's why verse 7 says, now, there elapsed an in interval about three hours. Why is that? Some would say, well, they have, that happened in the morning service at the altar call, and then this was the evening service. Well, it doesn't say that. Nice idea. Could very well be three hours. That's, what, that's how long it took to take care of the burial of Ananias' body appropriately in accordance with the Old Testament law. And here they are maybe back at the upper room. And Peter could be leading the way with the apostles. We don't know. God doesn't give us all the information. Saying, you know what? We need to talk to the wife now. We need to bring Sapphira. And, and Peter knows that Sapphira was a part of it. He knows. God revealed that to him. That was a miracle. Who was it that killed Ananias? It was God. Some people are shocked by that. God killed Ananias, a professing Christian? Yes. You know what's even more shocking? Who killed Jesus on the cross? God Almighty. Isaiah 53. Unbelievable. He is a holy God. Jesus died willingly. Jesus subjected himself willingly to the curse, to the wrath of Almighty God, the Father on behalf of sinners. So three hours goes by, verse seven, and his wife came in. So Sapphira comes into the presence of the apostles. They are the established authority. They're the elders of that big church. They're laying the foundation of the church. They have the delegated authority of Jesus himself. Sapphira has no idea what was happening. She didn't know about her husband. She didn't know that Ananias was dead and buried. She didn't know that Ananias met with Peter and the apostles and was exposed. So she knows nothing. So she's hiding this plan that her and her husband in her heart. Verse 8, immediately Peter responded to her. Responded isn't the she didn't ask a question. Peter looked at her and he started talking directly to her, very deliberately, and said to her, "Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price." Ananias told me you sold the land for this much money. Is that true? Did you really sell it for that much? And she said, "Yes, that was the price." Lie. I think Peter's giving her a chance to fess up and confess and repent. She doesn't. She hardens her heart. She covers her lie with another lie, her deceit with a lie, her greed with a lie. Then Peter said to her, verse 9, Why is it that you have agreed together, you and your husband, to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, the young men. There they are. They just buried your husband, and they will carry you out as well. That is a prophecy. That is a word of knowledge as an apostle, divinely given by Almighty God. It can't be replicated or duplicated. Peter knew. You know what? God's going to strike you dead in just a second, and those men are going to carry you out. Verse 10, and immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. She died. And the young men who were at the door, they came in. See, they were outside. They came in. They found her dead, and they carried her out, and they buried her next to her husband wow, this is sobering, this is alarming, this is shocking, this is gripping, this is fearful, this is this is true. That is the extent of God's discipline. It was both of them, and it was the ultimate penalty of death. So the event prompting God's discipline, lying to the Holy Spirit, lying to God by lying to God's people or the event, And then the extent of God's discipline is instant death. And then finally, number three, the effects of God's discipline. There are many effects, but one that is accentuated in this passage is holy fear. Holy fear. Verse 11, but also in verse 5, we read it. Great fear came over all who heard of the fact of how Ananias died. And then verse 11, great fear came over the whole church. There it is. Word got out. It spread throughout the entire community. That communication grapevine of the church with 20,000 people got out quickly. Did you hear what happened to Ananias and Sapphira? They died instantly. Not only that, twenty thousand people, the entire community outside outside believers heard about this unbelievers heard about this. Wow, do you hear what happened in that assembly of those new Jesus followers, that massive entity that keeps growing and is at solomon 's portico, and there's like ten thousand members, and they're those ones getting dunked in water out in public, like John the Baptist used to do, the followers of jesus, that that man that was killed? did you hear? Prominent people just died, got executed instantaneously, apparently from God in their midst. I don't want to join that organization. That's one of the effects. That's what happened. Unbelievers became very cautious about affiliating with this church. And that was by God's intention. That's one of the ways He purifies His church. This is true of the persecuted church all throughout history. It's going on. I said there were a hundred million Christians being persecuted around the world right now, mostly in Islamic and communist countries, whole scale. And it's always been true of those persecuted churches. They are a pure church, a courageous church. And those around them are very hesitant to affiliate and join with them at the risk of death, either from outside or maybe God himself. So persecution is always how... And discipline are some of the main means that God has always purified his church. So these were the effects. The effects of God's discipline, a holy fear, a pure fear, a legitimate fear. There's legitimate fear and there's illegitimate fear. As a Christian, should we fear God as Christians? Well, yes and no. Well, what if you're not a Christian? Should you fear God? Well, there's only one answer to that, and that is yes. Sadly, the answer is usually... They don't. But a Christian should fear God. We should have an awe for him, a respect for him, um, a fear of our sin and the judgment we know that it deserves from him because he is holy, he is omniscient, he knows everything, he sees everything we do. So we struggle and we battle with our conscience. We should have a holy, reverent fear of Almighty God, our blessed Savior. And at the same time, because we are adopted into his family through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we are born again, and Jesus took the penalty and was punished by God the Father for all of our sins, and we believe in that gospel, then we are saved, we're adopted into the family of God, we're called children of God, all of our sins are totally forgiven. And God is our Father. He loves us intimately. He loves us securely. He loves us eternally. Once we become Christians, He loves us unconditionally. Actually, it's the condition is our relationship through Jesus Christ. We are secure in Him. We have peace with God. We don't fear Him anymore as an enemy. So there, in a sense, there, we have no fear of God in that we don't fear His wrath anymore. We don't fear His eternal judgment anymore. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So. A certain kind of fear is alleviated and taken away when you become a Christian. Yet there remains this awe for God, for who he is from the point of view of a believer in light of our sin that remains within us. So yes, Christians should fear God. Well, there are many lessons that we can appropriate from this passage in this story. And, man, you know, going through, I mean, everything's been pretty happy and joyous in the book of Acts. When you say up t- through the first four chapters, <laughs> this is like, boom. What a confrontation. But God has specifically chosen to reveal this to us in his church for a reason. We need to hear this this story and this lesson and live in light of it. And here's just some practical points to take away in light of what we've gone over here that I will leave you with. Uh, number one is worship God for who he really is. Worship God in his fullness. He's not just a God of love. He is a God who is holy, who is pure, who is justice, who is wrathful, who is gracious, who is mercy, all those attributes. What a a glorious, blessed, splendid, marvelous, infinite God that we know through Jesus Christ. And worship him accordingly. So worship God for who he is in his fullness. Number two, deal with your sin now, not later. That's why scripture says examine yourself, examine yourself, be honest, ask the Holy Spirit like King David did in the psalm. God, search me, search my sin and let me know and even search Unknown sins, sins that I'm blind to, reveal those to me. Sins of omission, sins of commission. God, I am dependent upon you. The Holy Spirit, the only one who can thoroughly examine our hearts deep within the recesses of our soul. And that's where it starts. Not deal with your sin after the fact, after you got caught, after I got caught. Is now, before it happens, preventative. While it's in seed form, while the temptations come along. God, protect me, go before me. Reveal these sins. You know how God reveals sin to us in this life for the most part? Because we pray that. It sounds good, doesn't it? I don't know a Christian who wouldn't agree with that prayer. Yeah, I need to pray God uh expose sin in my life. Yeah, man, bring it all. Well, usually the way God does that is through another person. Really? And then, ooh, I don't like that. I don't like him. I don't like her. Who do they think they are? They're sinful. What about their sin? That's how we do it. But that's how God usually exposes our sin. So if you're going to pray that prayer, be open to the means by which God will answer that prayer. Deal with your sin now, not later. Because if you have, if you, if you don't deal with your sin, you will, God will deal with your sin later. He said in the Old Testament, your sin will find you out. It's going to catch up to every one of us, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. If you're not a Christian and you die in your sins. Hebrews 9.27 says it is appointed to men to die once and then judgment. Your sin will find you out. You'll go before the throne of almighty God, creator of the universe and the Lord Jesus Christ. And because you rejected him willingly, knowingly. You will be judged and you will be consigned to hell forever. Deal with that sin now. Now. Repent. Bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, Savior of the world. Asking for forgiveness, He will answer that prayer, He will save you. And you'll be secure in Him forever. If you're a Christian not dealing with your sin now, and you keep putting it off, it will be exposed in this life. Either through church discipline, through embarrassment, through getting caught, And if it is not dealt with and exposed in this life, God will deal with your sin in the next life as a Christian at the Bema judgment. Or even though you are a Christian, saved as it were by fire, says Paul. Your sin will be exposed. There could be some shame, says the Bible. Some shame is the word used. You will not lose your salvation. You will not receive the wrath of God in heaven. But there will be shame, says Paul, and also loss of reward in the next life. So, Christian, deal with your sin now. And I'm talking to myself as well. Deal with your sin now. We are dependent upon God, his spirit, prayer, and those who love us around us that know us best to do that. So worship God, deal with your sin. Just two more. Be on guard for the temptation of money and the materials of this world. Be on guard. Examine your life. Do you love money? Do you love possessions? Money is the root of all kinds of evil. We've got to guard against it. That's just a practical one. How willing are you to open your hand to a fellow brother in need, whether it's the keys to your car, the keys to your house, a $10 bill, your, dare I say it, iPhone. Anyway, be on guard for the temptation of money and the love of material position. And then finally, number four, uh, commit to and support church discipline. Commit to and support church discipline. It's Matthew 18. Jesus said it needs to happen. Church discipline. Some churches don't know about church discipline. Some churches loathe church discipline and want nothing to do with it. Some Christians hear about church discipline from other churches, and they're like, wow, that's terrible. I had an elder this week from a, a larger church. We had lunch together, and he told me they just disciplined somebody in their church at a communion service in the evening publicly and there were visitors at the church and they did church discipline step four and name names and all that stuff. And the un uh whoever was visiting, I can't even, I don't even know if they're a Christian or not, but uh they let the elders know they did not approve. That that is horrendous. That is unloving. I'd go to church for love. Really? Actually the most one of the most loving things you can do for Someone is point out their faults, right? And hold them accountable. That is an an act of love. So we need to commit to church discipline and we need to support it. And if you're a member of a church, you need to support your leadership in that. And I will admit it's a step of faith, right? God entrusts this tremendous authority in the hands of frail, fallen, finite human beings. Dealing with very sensitive issues and matters that, pertain to to people. So it requires the utmost, the greatest integrity and responsibility to do it and to do it right, preserving people's reputations every step of the way in accordance with God's will. With that, I want to close. If you have your Bible, go to Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and we'll close with this scripture and then I'll pray. Ecclesiastes in the book of the poetic books, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon. Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon at the end of his life, when God convicted him, exposed his sin, he repented, came back, very wise man, being led by the Spirit of God as he wrote down many wonderful and blessed things. And just listen, follow along. Ecclesiastes 5 1 through 7. Great advice, great wisdom about making rash vows to Almighty God, which is what Ananias and Sapphira did. They made a vow to God that they would give all the money. They did. Verse 1, guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God, for God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you owe. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin. And do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Oh, I'm sorry. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words, there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. With that, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for our time together. The wonderful privilege it always is to worship with the saints, to celebrate the Lord's day, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the book of Acts, this true story, the teaching of the Holy Spirit, reminding us of basic truths, that you hate sin, you must punish sin, we must fear you. And also the good news, Lord, that there's forgiveness of sin that doesn't require our works, but only acknowledging that we are sinners, that we need to repent, and also acknowledging that Jesus is God. He is Lord. He died on the cross, got punished by you, Father, as a substitute for our sin. He rose again from the dead, ascended on high, and is calling out to sinners to turn their lives over to him. We thank you for that blessed news. And God, may this story of the book of Acts reverberate in our minds all throughout the day and this week as we seek to please you in how we live. We give you all the glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.